Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. The Supreme Court announced that it would hear three cases that seek to determine whether existing federal law bans workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Among LGBT activists and advocates, one could sense something like a deep intake of breath, of the sort one makes when a fragile object is starting to tumble off a shelf across the room. You know it's going to shatter, you are too far away to try to catch it, and you watch, helplessly, its interminable path to catastrophe. Welcome to Punching Out. I'm Noah, and I'm here today joined by Greg. Hi, I'm Greg. And Zoe. And we're here today to talk about, as you just heard, the Supreme Court's recent decision to hear three cases um, all concerning workplace discrimination against queer and trans workers. As a show about work, as a show about workers, we felt it was especially important to talk about discrimination against subsets of workers, especially in a time when the federal government and many, many state governments are trying to ramp up that discrimination. So what we've got here is, uh, I think Greg, our legal eagle, is going to start out by summarizing these cases. And we'll spend this first segment just making sure that we lay out the framework in which we'll be discussing them. Greg? All right. So the three cases uh, that are are coming up are Express Altitude v. Zarda, that's a Second Circuit case, where um, a skydiving instructor uh, from Long Island uh, was fired for being gay, and the Second Circuit upheld his, uh, the EEOIC, being Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, uh, uh, reinstating him. He has since passed away, but I believe his estate is continuing the... Uh, I believe his sister and a former sister, partner, yep. yes. And then that's being combined with a... Clayton County, uh, Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, where the Mr., I believe Mr. Bostock was a child uh, welfare worker of some kind for the county. That's in the 11th Circuit. They uh, declined to uh, reinstate him or to to hold the determination was illegal. And so those two are being combined. Um, and the Supreme Court does this fairly often when there's what's called a circuit split, when you have two federal circuits that have ruled opposite ways on an issue in order to make sure the law is the same across the whole country, the Supreme Court will often take it. That's a good indicator of what, what's going up to the court. And this third case is RG and GR Funeral Homes Incorporated v. Amy Stevens. Amy Stevens is a trans woman who informed her employer that she would be transitioning and that she, would be follow- she agreed to follow the female dress code. Um, and she was fired uh, for that on the Sixth Circuit ruled that uh, she was, in fact, protected by the by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So that is going up separately, I believe. Now, uh, from my understanding, the Supreme Court uh, already issued a declaration that it's going to limit that last case, the Harris Funeral Homes case, to only the question of whether Title VII, as it exists, applies to prohibiting discrimination against transgender people. That makes sense. But I guess I don't know. 
if it matters what they rule on these cases so much as it was, is the aggregate kind of ruling, because I think they'll follow each other because they're in the same term. Right. Not to put too fine a point on it, but given the current composition of the court, how screwed do we think queer and trans workers are right now? Well, I would say 80% screwed. Um, and I would say probably my guess would be that gays and lesbians have a better chance than trans individuals, but that is often, that is often kind of tended to be the pattern in, in civil rights law. I think the law is fairly clear because Title VII does protect not only specifically sex, but also sexual identity and expression. You can't, you can't fire someone for being a woman. You can't fire someone for acting too manly or not manly enough. That's very, that's a very clear precedent. So to say that, um, to say that you can then fire someone for having, you know, the pronouns or sexual relationships or other accoutrement uh, of the opposite sex seems, it seems like there's no line there. But on the other hand, the Supreme Court uh, is chock full of originalists, and as we all know, you know, the Civil Rights Act was written in 1964. As we all know, gay people were not invented until 1971, and trans people not until 2002 or three. He's being sarcastic. I, I'm sorry, word yes. That is 100% not true. Both gay and trans people have been around for a very long time. They will say that uh, in 1964, the drafters of this act did not intend to cover these categories of people, and so they are not protected. That is the originalist argument, and that is, I think, what will be the uh, carry the day. Zoe, do you want to sum up this originalist argument and our opinions on it in <laughs> some pretty quick terminology? Um, basically, it's saying that that trans and queer people don't necessarily exist, that their existence is completely determined by this court. So it's like, it's basically codifying into like, you know, historical ju jurisprudence, the idea that someone who is a trans woman is actually a man and someone who is a trans man is actually a woman and that trans non-binary people don't get to be that way. It's basically saying not only do you not exist, but if you decide that you want to pretend that you exist, then, you know, your employer can basically tell you to take a hike and there's absolutely no protection for you. You're not entitled to work anymore. You're not entitled to support yourself, which seems awfully arbitrary to me, but put that aside for but, now. <laughs> but I've been told that, but I've been told that the Supreme Court is full of our nation's finest legal minds. I mean, men like Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, you know, just products of uh, amazing schools. It's almost like it's, you know, entirely based on who you know and who decided to get into power based on how much money they have over the several hundred year course of this, you know, entirely classist and genocidal and bloodthirsty country. Um, but who am I to say? I haven't, I haven't necessarily lived all of that, but that's just what I can ascertain in hindsight. It, I, I think in broad strokes, you're probably right. So I, I do have one interesting note here that I didn't learn until about two hours ago when I was doing research <laughs> for this episode. But in the, in the case with Amy Stevens, the Harris Funeral Homes case, so I didn't know this, but apparently the EEOC sued the funeral home back in 2014 or what have you. Now, that case has continued. What has not continued is more or less the existence of the EEOC. 
I went to their page. Right now, they've got an acting chair. Uh, they have one commissioner, and they have no one else. There is no general counsel. There are no commissioners. And we've, uh, we've talked before on this show about how one of the sort of underrated parts of the Trump administration is that they've basically just been refusing to appoint anybody to things like OSHA or maritime safety, or now we know equal employment opportunity. They're basically just letting all these things go fallow because there are some of the few agencies left that could actually throw a wrench in any horrendous thing that the Trump administration tries to do. It's frankly a bit hard to see how we can continue to have a country at some point when you have four to eight years of, of one side, you know, writing regulations and staffing positions and so forth, and then the other side, four to eight years of just not not even put it, turning them in a different direction, but just completely denying these agencies, you know, exist. Mm-hmm. But, you know. It's, um, it's like fascism by abstinence. It's, it's an interesting <laughs> strategy, but pretty on brand. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, con- considering the composition of the court and their general sort of beliefs on on things. Yeah, absolutely. I was making this point to Noah before, but Neil Gorsuch, this this case is perfect for Neil Gorsuch. There's a Ugh. he in in the same perfect way that, for Neil Gorsuch is a cursed phrase. <laughs> in the same way that uh uh Justice Roberts was born to destroy the Voting Rights Act, Neil Gorsuch was born to destroy administrative law. And specifically, this is going to, you know, two birds with one stone here. There's a law called Chevron, which is the central Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council, which is the central case of administrative law. And it basically says that when an administrative agency, like the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, makes a ruling on on regulations, as long as their ruling is, it doesn't matter what the, if the judge thinks they're right, it's as long as their ruling is is permissible and is not arbitrary and capricious, uh, they win. There's no. It's only if the judge determines that there's that there was no possible way they could have gotten to that by following the law that the judge then applies his or her own judgment. Neil Gorsuch hates this because it gives power to administrative agencies. Neil Gorsuch's mother was dismissed as the EPA chair uh, by Reagan after public outcry uh, forced forced him to dismiss her when she basically gutted the agency in the way we were talking about before. You know, which is exactly what he told her to do, but yeah, apparently she was too public certain, about it. Yes. Yes. So literally from, well, probably not from birth. He's probably older than that. But from a very young age, it, it runs in the family, destroying administrative agencies. So if he can destroy Chevron and give, and, you know, restore power to employers and stick it to LG, stick it to, to queer and trans Americans, then I think he's going to do it, folks. Yeah, that's very interesting that um, the EEOC is actually, you know, the involved in this case because then basically Neil Gorsuch gets to tell them that they're wrong. Um, <laughs> that, that's like, ha- true. That's, that's so interesting. And My there, God, we're, we're completely screwed. There have been a number I think the 80% was a bit generous. Yeah. There have been a number of cases like this lately where, um, uh, where the Justice Department, which is, you know, the president is pretty hands-on about controlling, has been weighing it on one side, and some agency or other has been weighing it on the other side. The government is, well, divided against itself, as somebody or other once said. It was Lincoln. Um, Though, yes. A house divided against itself cannot yes, stand. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, one might say that the conditions are perhaps ideal for some kind of action that might, you know, change the course of things not to be too specific or anything. 
I, I said 80% because I think not that there is a 20% chance of the conservative majority on the court discovering human decency, but because there are some Republicans who will get nervous and a little little touchy about, about the party if it is perceived as the super anti-gay party as opposed to the quietly anti-gay party. And also, Chief Justice Roberts has a thing about not wanting to go down in history as a very, you know, as a, a chief justice who made a ruling that is going to be, you know, that is going to be later taught in law school as one of the canon of terrible cases. And this might be one, you know, right up there with, with, with Plessy and Dred Scott and so on and so forth. And like three other ones he's so done. So it's possible yeah. he'll balk or, um, or they'll limit it to an extremely narrow holding. So that's where that twenty percent comes in, but no, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think there'll be a, a beautiful change of heart in uh, anytime soon. You know, folks, we consider ourselves on the left on punching out, but uh, we do love to take aim at the Democrats now and again. And uh, Greg was talking about how you can't really have this this thing where there's a a slight leftward nudge towards you know good governance, let's call it, and and regulation, and then every time our right wing party, uh, to put it lightly, gets in power, they just basically slash and burn the entire place down. Because that right word lurch has already been in place when it comes to queer and trans Americans. The Trump administration already uh, famously banned transgender troops serving in the military. And apparently, and I probably should have known this given I work in education, but reversed guidance that the Obama administration had issued to schools saying that they had to honor students' preferences as to which bathrooms they they prefer to use. And I think what we're seeing is that things are coming to a head. And the I, I think even some Democrats are beginning to realize that you can't do this. You can't do government by executive order and agency regulation anymore because people like Neil Gorsuch are quite willing to just completely erase the impact of any of those things. I guess right now there is a House law or a House bill, I should say, uh, that would explicitly prohibit workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, and I think um, I, possibly it includes uh, rights for people with disabilities as well. But I think that's already supposed to be covered under some other acts. I think this just makes it more explicit. But I think where I'm trying to get to this is that we are always in, in the sort of on the side of the angels. We're always playing catch up with this stuff. Um, yeah, it's it's because of incrementalism. It's because of the fact that, you know, people who are on the left who fancy themselves to be accepting and open-minded are, you know, often willing to have empathy for the other side to a degree. And I think that that has become like this almost brain-diseased, like, centrism, basically, where it's like, but how can we tell them that they're wrong? Or how can we, like, upheave the system? How can we upheave the status quo? And it's just fear, it's fear of being perceived as wrong somehow. It's like, it's not born of like true, you know, conviction almost. It's become something completely different. And you can't have that lack of conviction against people who are so utterly and completely hateful and bigoted. Like you can't, you can't fight bigotry with a lack of conviction. And that's really what the Democrats do in these situations. I agree with your point about empathy though. Have either of you heard of the Mrs. Murphy rule to draw no. a parallel? The Mrs. Murphy rule is a housing, uh, part of the federal housing law, that uh, if you own, if the landlord owns a four or less unit home, 
or unit building and lives in that building, they don't have to follow the racial equality in the Fair Labor Housing Standards Act. What? Yeah, this is... Oh, my gosh. That makes so, that makes so much sense, though. Like, that's basically, like, the housing version of all of these, like, you know, bigoted things about small businesses. Like, oh, if you have a small enough business, you yeah. don't have to respect people's yeah. religion or sh- race or anything else. Yeah, you shouldn't <laughs> have to work with the gay people. This old Irish lady, Mrs. Murphy, who was the example in con- that they gave in Congress during the debates, she shouldn't have to live with a black guy. You know, that's that's the the, the theory is that somehow these people, somehow, you know, I'm I'm using quotation marks here. Decent people should not have to associate with quote unquote deviant people. And I, so, I and saw the I saw the air quotes. I can confirm they are seventy two points. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's that kind of it, it's that kind of empathy. The same way, you know, why should Hobby Lobby have to pay? Why should you know Mister and Mrs. Hobby have to pay for uh, for birth control? They're just a little old, you know. They're just a little old religious couple trying to do things the best way they can. It's a very it's a very good thing to feel compassion for others, but only when those others are acting in, in good faith and in, in human kindness and charity. And if they're not, then we can't extend that to them. That's just that's just a wedge. That that's the problem, I think. Yeah, you you guys are exactly you're exactly right. This ethos of radical empathy that even some people that I think are generally guilty of having good politics and maybe even the right idea about how to go about enacting those politics. I think sometimes we kind of miss the forest for the trees and we think, you know, that all of this works on the same level as me trying to convince somebody else that maybe it's actually okay to raise the minimum wage or to pay uh, NCAA athletes or any of the other multitudinous points we've made on this show. But on a macro level, it just doesn't work that way. It's it's purely about power. And if nothing else, the Trump administration is very clearly sending a message to queer and trans Americans that that's what they have right now. They have the power to do whatever the hell they want. And people like Neil Gorsuch and, and uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and very possibly John Roberts stand ready to exercise that power. I feel a bit like Francis Fukuyama here. In in 2013, 2014, I was like, oh, well, the courts ruled on it. This is the end of history. And now this and now things are going to, you know, gradually start moving downhill and all the rest of the barriers are going to break for for queer and trans people. And it didn't. It doesn't. It, it, it The clock can be rolled back. We have to deal with that with that reality now. Zoe, I think you had a thought. Oh, I was just going to say we should be clear that um, the precedent that in theory the court should be ruling on is not only uh, the Civil Rights Act itself, but also um, we were going to bring up Pricewaterhouse v. Hopkins, which was very clear that on sex stereotyping, which Greg mentioned earlier, which sets a lot of precedent that, you know, this should be, you know, the ruling should be very clear that this isn't okay, but they're going to figure out a way to turn that around. Absolutely true. I think we've raised a number of issues in this segment. What we'll do now is we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to try to get at the deeper currents that these three cases uh, reveal in Amer- in Supreme Court jurisprudence in American society, and uh, hopefully try to give you a full view of the action. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Noah. I'm here with Zoe. Hey. And Greg. Hello. And for the past segment, we've been talking about three cases that the Supreme Court recently accepted to hear in their infinite mercy and wisdom um, about whether workplaces are allowed to discriminate against people on the basis of their sexual orientation or their uh, and or their gender identity. And we ended with uh, Zoe bringing up this case, uh, which is from, I believe, 1989, the year I was born, Price Waterhouse v. Hopkins, which I think we can actually use as a sort of microcosm, or that's not the correct term, a focus from which we can spread out and talk about a number of deeper issues that these three cases that are coming before the court now actually kind of reveal. Are either of you especially familiar with this case? I... I did study it in law school, but it has not been my uh, my particular specialty. Zoe? <laughs> I mean, I know what I've read about it on the internet in the last week or so. <laughs> um, I've but the es- essentially, hours, so. <laughs> essentially um, it's a case that uh, established a precedent for sex stereotyping being unfair gender discrimination. Um, and it's, I, I believe, where we get the argument that um, sex stereotyping is connected to sexual preference. For example, the idea that, you know, if a woman is dating a woman and that's not okay with you, you wouldn't um, discriminate against a man for dating a woman. Uh, I believe that's where we get that rationalization or that argument that it's not okay to discriminate against somebody because of their chosen partner. Um, and I, I think that with the case regarding the, tra- the trans woman who was dismissed from the funeral home, I think that the extrapolation would be like that you wouldn't, you know, stereotype um, and say that, oh, because she was born with this assigned gender that she must behave and express herself in that way. Um, that would be, I think, the, the natural extension of that argument is that discriminating against someone for being trans is a form of uh, sex stereotyping. And I, I think it is interesting in that case that she said to the employer specifically that she would follow the female dress code because there, there have been rulings that it's okay to have a different female and male dress code, which I think is a little, well, whatever, I, I disapprove. But, um, and I, I do think that's an area that the courts, so far as I know, have not explored particularly is if somebody is, is non-gender presenting um, or is, is non-binary, how that ties in with all of this. But frankly, I think we can leave that decision lie a few more years and hope that uh, hope the courts are more friendly when it does come up. But I think it will. Um, I know some non-binary people who have had a relatively easy time, like kind of customizing the dress code to go with what they feel is most comfortable for them. Um, it's only because the dress codes off for uh, men are often very like kind of non-specific. Um, so if they can kind of like get just close enough so that like it doesn't draw too much attention, they usually get away with it. Um, but obviously when you're working in like a small traditional business, you are probably more visible. Um, and in like, which case you're kind of screwed. <laughs> I would like to emphasize that under 
all precedents whatsoever in this area of law, race and gender, it is not acceptable for someone, for a business owner to say, oh, I can't put a person like that at the cashier, at the register, because they will scare my customers. That's not an acceptable, you know, that, that's not an acceptable rationale. And Well, and, and the thing is, like, taking this ruling, uh, Price Waterhouse v. Hopkins, which I promise we'll stop talking to you about literally 30-year-old cases <laughs> in a second here, but taken in a certain light, this ruling becomes very liberatory because uh, my understanding is that the the plaintiff was a woman who was up for partnership and was denied two years in a row and was explicitly told that it was because she wasn't acting enough like a woman. And when the Supreme Court establishes that it's not only on the basis of sex that you can't discriminate against somebody, but on the basis of stereotyping, on the basis of their conduct, on the basis of their performance of their gender – if we were an actual functioning country with real values, that would have been it. That that should have been it because that, it, that that's the whole game. Once you admit that somebody's uh, – how somebody acts is no longer a reason to discriminate against them, the line of precedent should have been clear. But unfortunately, we're a garbage country with garbage values and garbage jurisprudence in a lot of ways. So here we are. Yeah, the argument was basically that this woman could not behave in whatever way felt best and natural to her because they didn't like it, um, regardless of whether she was like being professional or being a good worker or anything like that, which is very silly when you think of it. It's, it's basically attempting to rule on whether or not, like I said in the first segment, whether you're allowed to be yourself which, when you get down to the bones of it, is a very dehumanizing thing. That's why it's been so significantly anxiety-inducing for the queer community and trans communities in this country, because it's basically saying, you're not allowed to be yourself in public. You're not allowed to be yourself at work. Well, and I, and I like how, Greg, uh, how you put it, Greg, that this, this ruling is ultimately not about workplaces that are chill and friendly to queer people. Um, but it's about making sure that people who aren't chill and aren't friendly to queer and trans people have the power to enforce those views on people who work for them and, and take, uh, take punitive action against them for the quote-unquote crime of being themselves. And I work for a place that you wouldn't expect to be even as minimally chill as it is with queer people. I know people who work with me who are out to colleagues and to the organization. And it's mostly been fine. I mean, there's always the kind of like, there's the social level of uh, awkwardness and, and there's that kind of thing. But officially, at least, the organization says, the workplace says, we're not going to discriminate against you. We're, we are absolutely not about that. But you definitely get the feeling that it's entirely because of public relations concerns and that if tomorrow, if, if this ruling came down and it said, no, you can now discriminate against people for their sexual orientation, for their gender identity, for whatever, uh, any of those things that you want, I think my workplace would probably start figuring out ways to, if they couldn't do it outright, start manufacturing reasons why they could. Because that's a thing we haven't mentioned. In two of these cases, part of the suit is that 
there were apparently what are almost certainly false accusations against these employees in order to be able to fire them without the public authority, which is Clayton County or Altitude Express, which was the business, seeming to have fired somebody on the basis of their uh, sexual orientation. And I think a lot of businesses will still want to do that because it, it, in many places, it's still not a good look, capital G, capital L. But I think that would come back in a real hurry. I, I'm going to say I have not read these, these three. I have not read the briefs. But from the coverage I've heard, and I don't know if you two have heard differently, this is not a First Amendment case. This is only a civil rights case. So New York, uh, New York state laws will still apply to, to your workplace, Noah, and, and same with a lot of other states. The real danger is the next case where somebody brings a, uh, a suit saying that it violates my First Amendment rights of religion and of association to have to work with a gay person because my religion believes that that is immoral. So th- this exposes queer and trans people to discrimination in let's say, half the country, more or less. That will wipe out the protections in the other half, you know, and any state attempts to make their lives, make their citizens' lives even, like, marginally better. So uh, I am worried both for now and for the future. I am kind of in a unique situation personally because I work in a very queer and trans-affirming workplace that also happens to be a religious institution, technically. So I've kind of enjoyed the... um, the specter of being able to be like, haha, screw you, you know, you're, you're the ones who are always going on about how religious beliefs, you know, mean that you can do whatever you want, even if it's hateful. And I think that we do a pretty good job of expressing that in a positive way and saying like, you know, it's part of our, you know, faith practice as an organization or whatever to uh, be affirming to queer and trans people. Um, but I worry, obviously, about the uh, the viability of my organization in the future and whether, you know, what if I ever have to look for another job, I'm never going to be this safe again, um, being that I am in a queer relationship and I'm openly queer at work. So, and that feels amazing, but it's going to feel rather bittersweet in hindsight if I ever have to hide that from somebody. Yeah, I, no, I, that's, that's a real concern, and I... I, I empathize with that we probably should have told you up front uh to all of you listening that this was going to be a bleak episode in many ways because unfortunately we have the court that we have with the justices that we have and i think um given how even more public their conduct as people and as judges has been compared to you know even the last 20 years um you can say that We've got a lot of people on the Supreme Court who I think are there. I won't go so far as to say that they are their their main concern is finding ways to hurt the uh, the grand majority of Americans, but I think they couldn't give less of a rat's butt whether they do or not. I think looking back, this will be seen as kind of a black period in the history of the court where the precedents are just they're not there and they're you know, almost all over, you know, like it was from 1900 to 1930 or so when the court's main hobbies were racism and striking down uh, child labor laws. If you, if you want a little optimism, and why do I never get to be in the optimistic episodes, um, I, uh, my two would say that I think public opinion is shifting such that in a lot of places, not in all the places, but in a lot of places, it will be bad business to refuse to hire 
to hire queer people. And yeah, so, it's almost like it's not going to be worth the tweets, you know? Yeah. That's, that's a good phrase. I like Controlled that. by posting. Um, I think we're mostly worried about local and small companies. Large companies have many, many problems, which we have some of which we've detailed before here. Right. But I think, for example, a national company like Target, I, either because their their national executives are you know personally in favor of of uh, queer rights, or because they don't want to deal with the publicity again, they're not going to let their stores in Alabama fire gay people, no matter how much the Alabama store manager might want to. So that's not a perfect safeguard by any means. There will be excuses, there will be pretexts, there will be, you know, you don't have to give a reason, but I think it, it is it is something, and it is something that we can take and uh, mobilize and build on to eventually, if the court goes the wrong way, to eventually get something like the, the Equality Act or something else like that passed, which is hopefully- Yeah, we a, also, I mean, we generally need to get rid of at-will employment in general mm -hmm. so that people can't be dismissed without a reason given. You mean all of these things are kind of like interconnected? Or they intersect, as it were? <laughs> Uh, the problem with if that, there were only oh, now wow. for that, the, the problem is at will employment is not a law. It's a um, it's an it's a baseline assumption. Mm. So if it became if the baseline assumption became different, every company in America would just write into a contract uh, that you can be dismissed at will. We would have to completely ban that, and that is that's a huge step. It's a good step, but I think it's much further out than uh, some of the other things we're talking about here. I was just going to say to go back to um, what Greg was saying about how national companies aren't going to want to discriminate openly, um, which is fair. There is like an interesting angle of capitalism where finally like billionaires who run these big companies are starting to realize that queer and trans people have money sometimes that they might spend, you know, in the economy. Um, so there is like there, there's a there's a capitalist benefit that some companies are really starting to see about like including queer people and including trans people. And that's certainly not liberation. It's just, you know, it's a different form of subjugation under capitalism, um, but it does give us like some slim short-term benefit while I think we try to figure out what we're actually going to do next. And there have been a few cases in which either states or large non-state actors have, have acted in a beneficial way. It's not something we can count on, but you know, uh, when Andrew Cuomo said uh, they won't do business with companies in, was it South Carolina over the bathroom bill? or I think so. Yeah. Or, or God, 20, 30 years ago when the NFL said they wouldn't have the Super Bowl in Arizona until Arizona agreed to make Martin Luther King Day a national holiday. These are, you know, purely symbolic. We can't rely on them for the nitty-gritty of everyday acts, but it's it's something, and it's also a sign that if these companies are afraid to do these things, then it's a sign that uh, that queer people and their allies have power and that they can take other steps, which is which is encouraging to me. And and that's a great point because one thing we do, one theme that always runs through this show, whether it's an optimistic or a pessimistic episode, is that ultimately one of the reasons we've gotten to where we are is that for decades, literal literal decades, we were told put your trust in the small core of you know, basically professional activists and this set of NGOs and, and kind of political pressure groups and so on, and they'll figure it out. We had a sort of representative democracy within the representative democracy that if you just put these groups and, and you give them your money, they'll come out, they'll get whatever it is done. And I think what we're all now beginning to realize is that you really cannot rely on that, that we actually do have to mobilize everyone 
with, to the capacity that they can be mobilized and, and get out there to uh, fight for their own rights. It, it's really corny and trite, but I think one of the reasons that we think it's corny and trite is because we've been told that it doesn't work. And we're seeing now, whether through small signs like what you folks are describing and through bigger signs like, you know, the the big victories, because we shouldn't discount victories like, you know, over Gefell v. Hodges. That required, that, that was an example of these organizations getting people and mobilizing them in a very specific way for a very specific goal. And it worked. And we should be very proud that it worked. But I think we are beginning to realize that every citizen, if if this is something that concerns you, you need to get out there in the streets and you need to be there for that. Otherwise, the official arm of, of these um, campaigns is not going to be able to do it on their own, no matter how much they want to. I am more skeptical um, just because I think I think you can't there is there is certainly power in a mass movement there and there are a few things that will get people large numbers of people out in the street, streets and screaming and throwing things or calling their calling their representatives and screaming at them or you know some sort of but I think to make a full-scale change we'd have to have some kind of permanent mass movement which is very difficult because people are extremely busy and tired and there just isn't the energy there all the time. Like, there are times when people become intensely politicized and then there are times when they kind of pull back from it because because that's what's happening in society and culture. Right. There, There's sort of a, a dimension to that. You, you do have to ensure that your legislator is as not terrible as possible. But I think even then you have to make your that same legislator's life hell to make sure that they continue to be not terrible. Because I think given a choice, they will mostly choose to be terrible. For the most part, yeah, we have to, um, we do have to make sure that we're electing the people who are most likely to be on the side of the workers because, you know, movement building is incredibly hard and incredibly hard to sustain. But I do, I kind of err more on the optimistic side, like, like Noah, that we're at a moment in this country where I think it might actually be possible sometime in the near future to have a really positive, ongoing movement, um, different than what we've seen in at least my lifetime. I think a lot of the, a lot of that has been done. We, I don't think anybody in the Democratic, I don't think a single one of the Democratic presidential hopefuls would come out against gay rights. I don't think a single one of them will. And I think it's pretty much going to be a dead letter to run as a Democrat against gay rights in 90% of the country. So that's, how do we, I guess, how do we then how do we then make that a priority for them? Like, you know, assuming we get president whoever and, and a Democratic Congress, how do we ensure that that's a promise they follow up on as opposed to because they're going to make a lot of promises and some of them they'll keep, some they won't? What, what can queer activists and people concerned about these issues do? Make their life hell until they do it. That's basically it. That's the only thing that's ever worked. I suppose you're right. Yeah, don't shut up. Yeah. <laughs> like, keep, keep talking about stuff. Post at them directly <laughs> constantly yeah. no but in all seriousness i think um one thing that we do th- this is really more third segment stuff but i i did want to sort of include a small point again from this masha gasson article because i think you know just to go back to this marriage equality was marriage equality is literally the reason i turned left uh as a teenager it was just ridiculous to me that this was a right that not everyone had. And when 
Obergefell v. Hodges came down, that was just such an incredible thing. But uh, Gessen talks in this article about how other people in the LGBT, uh, I guess, activist community, based on the context, warned, I'm quoting now, warned of an inevitable backlash and noted that LGBT people had little to protect ourselves against it. The marriage equality movement had performed the kind of legal leapfrog. In more than half of the states, one could legally marry a partner of the same sex and get fired for it or be denied housing. In a sense, the marriage movement laid the groundwork for backlash by making queer people more visible, including those who didn't even stand to benefit from marriage rights. And I think this goes back to something Greg said. You were talking about how we basically just have to ban companies from writing into contracts things like we can fire you whenever we want and things like that. And I think, as you said, it's a good step, but it's that's basically the language and the approach that we have to take to all of this stuff. We have to explicitly ban things like you can't deny housing to people based just on a vague personal feeling that they're not the kind of people you want to live around. You can't, you know, we are actually going to have to re-envision what it means to live in a society that is fair to all of its citizens, including queer and trans people. And it's not only a, a necessary step, but because of things like the current Supreme Court and the Trump and the current presidential administration that we have, it's, it's an increasingly urgent one. No, I, I see the writer of the article's point, but I think something had to be first. And if it was housing instead of marriage, then you'd then you'd be like, okay, well, we can live there, but they can't live together, and they can't they can get fired for it. And if it was employment first, then so there was always going to be a backlash. Something had to be first, and this this was a more sympathetic issue, I think, than the other ones, at least at least initially. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's only sympathetic, in my opinion. I think the reason why it was sympathetic was because it was kind of a way of straight coding queer people, basically saying like, oh, they're just like you. They want to get married and have a house and have kids just like you, which in many cases is true, but in a lot of cases, it's really not. Um, and that's also true for a lot of straight people, like, you know, not everyone wants to have like this cookie cutter American life um, and queer people are, you know, often participating in actions with other marginalized groups that don't necessarily buy into that, like kind of capitalist American dream. Um, so I think it was in many ways, like it, it obviously had real effects, but it did ultimately have like a kind of capitalist sheen on it. So like, oh, like we're going to get all of the gays participating in, you know, the, the wedding industry and in the economy in ways that they previously weren't able to participate before. Um, like, I, I really do think that a lot of the, the ways that this got talked up to straight people was really just about straight coding queer people um, and making them seem less threatening and less different, which in, in some ways kind of further marginalized queer identity. The I, I I have read that, you know, in the the 60s and 70s, when the idea was initially brought up, radical queer activists were like, no, we want to abolish marriage altogether. We want to completely reshape society, and that that has that has somewhat that has not been the mainstream discourse uh, about gay mm -hmm. rights in the last 10, 20 years. Which it's true, it is much easier to get people to accept things that are mainstream, but it also limits how much change you can make. Absolutely true. 
And speaking of making change, I think we've all kind of been batting around ideas and sort of getting at some actual, dare I say it, positivity in this segment. And as we traditionally try to do on Punching Out, we'll come back in a bit and try to give you some more ideas for how we could solve this issue. Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hey, welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Zoe, and I'm here with Noah. Hi, y'all. And Greg. Hello. And in this last segment, we're going to talk more about potential avenues for change in a positive direction on this issue of queer and trans discrimination by our federal government. And I think Noah wanted to specifically bring up the idea of packing the courts. And what does that mean? So if you've heard about court packing uh, before like the last year and a half or so, you probably heard about it in the historical context of FDR threatening to add more justices to the Supreme Court because they were, al- they were about to uh, render the New Deal unconstitutional. And at the last moment, the Supreme Court in, uh, what was it called, the switch in time that saved nine or whatever? Yes. Dumb name. Anyway. Law, um, professor, law professors love saying things like that. Yeah, because it's stupid. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but they, at the last minute, they pulled back, and that saved a number of nine justices. But, of course, we always hear that as a, ultimately, you know, the sanctity of the court's number was respected. But the court doesn't have to be nine justices. And so we can't, unless there's a Democratic Congress, Democratic president and everything, they probably wouldn't be able to solve this issue in time for what I'm sure will be a scintillating opinion by Justice Gorsuch. But they might be able to prevent these future cases. And basically, all it would take is adding justices onto the court, legislating that, I guess. But all they would have to do is say the Supreme Court is now... 13, 17, 23. I'm just picking prime numbers out of my head at this point. Um, justices. I don't know if it needs, it, needs be, it needs to be an odd number. I don't think it needs to be a prime number. I know, but that would make it cooler. <laughs> okay. Um, but just, you know, it, it's not even an unprecedented thing. There are countries where the court of cassation or whatever the high court is called, it works like a court of appeals does here where essentially only a panel of judges hears any given case and they'll only all come together to hear something if it's especially important uh, just because that's the way they're constitutionally set up. There's no reason it can be done here. Uh, Greg, maybe you can fill me in on this. Is the size of the Supreme Court a constitutional thing? No, it is not. Um, it is uh, prescribed by Congress, and Congress uh, can change it whenever it wants. Uh, Congress can make it larger whenever it wants. I don't know that Congress could make it smaller if that involved... Well, it, they couldn't fire a justice without impeaching them. They couldn't oh, say, okay. okay, we're down to seven. You two are gone now. They can't lay off justices? No, I don't believe they can. Justices are... You heard it here first, folks. Justices are the only workers in the United <laughs> States immune to downsizing. How great. <sighs> um, they, well, they, they can't impeach them, but no chief, no Supreme Court justice has ever been impeached, so... It's not, I don't think it's, it's likely to start. Challenge accepted. Anyway. Oh, um, I would love that, though. That, that would, would be, be so good. Can you imagine another 
bunch of Kavanaugh hearings where he's even angrier than in the first one. And just like crying and flailing. Oh my God. If we were going to impeach, like if we, if we had the votes to do that, I don't know that Kavanaugh is the first place to start. I think no, be, probably no, not. That's true. <laughs> be third just or fourth, be the, probably. That's true. He'd just be the funniest one mm, to start that's, with. That's true. That's the best television. He would yes. be the best television. Yes. You put him out first. You establish that that's who you're impeaching. Everyone else just falls like dominoes at that point. Anyway, um, I guess the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's an idea that for much of my life, you really couldn't bring up without being accused of like, oh, you're in favor of some dictatorial overreach by the executive branch or the legislative branch or whatever. But very recently, um, Democratic presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg, it was, as is his want, vaguely in favor of packing the court. I think he said something about how we'll consider it, which is Buttigieg for... I don't even know. I, I haven't thought about it that much. That's <laughs> probably what he's saying. Yeah. Well, uh, at least at least he's not like falling, you know, all over himself to praise the sanctity of the nine judges or whatever. So that's a start. Nine judges, nine ring raids. You know, it makes perfect sense. But um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, black robes at all. Get him some dragons. There you uh, go. So. As as an attorney, you know I probably have more respect for the Supreme Court than the average than the average bear. But there are you know there are problems with this plan because the next time the Republicans have uh, a unified unified, unified government, unified control. Thank you. They will do the same. They will do the same. and so whoever the particular president is can get whatever he or she wants through. The kind of argument, of course, is that. Republicans might well do that anyway, and that's that's also true. I mean, it's a short-term solution, right. for sure. But what, what I would like to see is the Democrats threaten to do that, and then as a as a compromise, we build we we rebuild some sort of sanity into the Supreme Court selection process and establish it this time with something more than congressional norms, with actual laws or perhaps a constitutional amendment. I think that would be preferable to an escalating power race that eventually ends up with every single person in the country on the Supreme Court. But I, I definitely understand the, the reason for the court backing plan. Well, right. No, it's, it's absolutely a Band-Aid, but it's... We need Band-Aids right now, unfortunately. Yeah, are better than Because we're yes. just bleeding out. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one reason we need it. But also because I think it is important to establish the idea that none of this is sacred, right? There, there's a lot, especially around the judicial branch, and really ironically under... To be fair, I haven't been alive for that many chief justices, but under Rehnquist and Roberts, whom my very limited legal training uh, says were perfectly fine with slashing and burning president they didn't agree with, um, even when they claimed to be, you know, devotees of starry deities. Um, deities? Look. Um, you teach Latin. That's fine. Deceases. Much better. We say decisis in the legal field, but... Yeah, that's um, anglicized all to hell. But the point is, yes. the judicial branch, even as it has become more openly partisan, has at the same time tried to, I think, arrogate this air of sanctity um, that it really shouldn't have. I understand why, given how we regard it in society, it has that, but I think it is important to break that symbol of, no, there's nine justices and this is a fact, like, you know, you theoretically breathe relatively clean air and you walk on the ground and, you know, like, I don't know, you you presumably 
uh, you know, the United States dollar as the currency and that kind of thing. Like, I think it is important to always kind of remind ourselves that these are things, these are institutions that people put in power and they're based on that. And if they prove themselves not up to the task of being there for the people that put them in power, there is no reason to keep them in the current form that they have. It is, um, it's absolutely bizarre to me how effective the propaganda has been about like the quote unquote sanctity of these institutions of our government. I mean, this country, like as a legal entity is less than 300 years old or whatever. Like how, how can, how can something that really is so untested, um, especially in our modern climate be considered to be like immutable at, at this point? You know, it's it's just it's been pure propaganda by, frankly, right wing, you know, fascist people about how, like, we can't change things in this country. And we absolutely can. Well, I think the fear is much like constitutional amendments is that if we change it, it will get worse. Yes. Or that if we change it and to be fair, this is the thing we brought up. If we don't change it in the right way, when the right-wingers get back in power, they'll change it the other way, and they'll be worse about it because they can't be contained by any measure of legal control anymore. I think what we have to ask ourselves, and, and, and this has been a debate in the legal community for a long time, can we have somebody who is fair, impartial, objective, unbiased, those things? Because if we can, then we need to have those people as, as, as referees for every dispute in our democracy, which is pretty much the judge's handle. We'll ignore the arbitration issues for now, but. I mean, there's no such thing as unbiased. Everyone has unconscious bias based on their experience and who they are as a person. And that's in theory why we have like panels of justices as opposed to like just one guy. Um, But, you know, the fact that it has become such a partisan process and that we expect these people to follow, you know, partisan lines when they're making their decisions, I think shows that, you know, the, the idea of impartiality is just so completely theoretical. Like there's never going to be such a person in my opinion. So we have to figure out how we can be converse more productively about things in a legal sense. And I don't know, I don't know how, how likely that is unless we actually change the systems themselves to acknowledge the fact that, everyone has unconscious bias and that's a reality that we have to deal with. Well, that's, that's what, like I said, this is, you know, an argument in the legal academy. So that your position is legal realism, which is that the only thing that, you know, the only thing that you need to know is who the judge is and and what he or she does and came from and ate for breakfast that morning. And that's what matters. The the other school is legal formalism, you know, about precedent and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I suppose I don't disagree with you that, that there are no, no unbiased individuals, but we need somebody to do this and we need a way to pick them. And we need to also have that conversation nationally in a way that doesn't uh, devolve into a power struggle. And I don't know how to do that, frankly, and I'm hoping somebody does. So I think, I think that kind of builds in right before we started this segment, right before we broke, I guess, before the segment, we were talking about other non SCOTUS related things, right? That, that we have to do in order to make, hopefully, the Supreme Courts of the future, if that institution continues to exist, to be better than this one. Because um, this one, uh, folks, is a poop show. So I, I think that's where things like mass movements come in. I think that's where things... Like, it is unfortunate to put... Okay, it's not. But 
I, I, th- I suppose if you're much of a formalist, it probably seems very profane to put the constitutional fabric of the nation um, at the feet of what probably seems like the untrained mob. But the fact is that in the country that we live in, people are struggling, people are hungry, people are homeless, people are tired and busy and overworked and stressed and depressed and all of these various other things. And one of the few institutions that's supposed to be fair and impartial is very clearly putting its thumb even further on the scale than Republican Congresses and the wealthy and their political arms and on, on, and all of these people have been doing for decades now. And I think that's where you're beginning to see the decision of people to just completely lose respect for the institution at that point. The, the way, you know, mass movements only somewhat affect the group. I'm not going to say they don't at all, but the, their effect is limited compared to the elected branches. But I think what a mass movement could do is return some function to Congress, hopefully, and then the courts wouldn't be adjudicating every dispute because some of those would be adjudicated by a debate in Congress and then passing a law about whatever the issue is. But because Congress won't do that, the president and the courts have stepped in and revealed their various imperfections in doing so or or accentuated them maybe. Mm -hmm. I just, I came to this after what Greg said, I forget what I was going to say before. Have we talked on punching out before about uh, abolishing the Senate? Because I think that's also a great idea. We have not talked about it, and it probably is a great idea. I don't understand why we have a chamber that is named after Greg already outed me as a classics nerd. Um, after literally the word just means bunch of old dudes. Like we could, (laughs) there there is, come on, we're millennials. We're supposed to be ending these things. Well, I think on punching out, we support workers and we would not support a hundred old dudes or 90 old dudes and 10 old women being thrown out into the street without, uh, with only their portfolios and their pensions to comfort them. That would be wrong. Um, damn, but that was a good, that was good. (laughs) I'm not going to lie, but, uh, well, the reason we don't abolish the Senate is because it's constitutionally the hardest part of the thing to abolish. There's a there's a specific clause in the Constitution that says you can abolish, you can amend any part of this Constitution except the Senate. So we'd have to amend it twice. Nice. Oh man, that's hard. Yeah. But um, but nevertheless, the I think hard, that twice. Yeah. Nevertheless, I think that um, part of why people feel so. I guess marginalized and silenced uh, based on the machinations of our quote unquote democracy is because we do have this like higher chamber of Congress that is not, you know, elected proportionally and it creates these kind of power grabs in places where, you know, institutional racism has a particularly firm hold and institutional bigotry of all kinds, including against like queer and trans people who pretty much you know, they suffer so much more in rural areas um, than they do elsewhere um, when they ha- might have a chance to find communities that support them. Um, like being a rural queer person and, and be, or being a rural trans person is one of the hardest things to be in this country right now. So the fact that we have that higher chamber of Congress, I think, creates difficulty in putting legislation through that can help marginalize people because of just the way that it's structured. So we've we've batted around a number of ideas this segment to at least try and claw back a little bit from the, let's be honest, the the real bleak depths that we were talking about over the previous forty minutes. And 
I'm sure we could continue talking about it forever. I would personally love to be talking about this stuff instead. But unfortunately, we've only got an hour. So for today, <laughs> I'm Noah. I'm Greg. And I'm Zoe. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.